All right. Well, good morning, everybody. Y'all doing well? Wow. You like talking to one another, but not to me. I get it. It's all good. Well, if you're new with us this morning, I'm, my name's Chris, also one of the pastors on staff here, and um, have the privilege of opening God's Word with you guys this morning. Um, this morning, we're actually going to be in the last section of the book of Matthew. <laughs> I don't know how to receive that. I'm trying, I'm like, is that like we're excited to end or we're excited for you to be done talking about it? I'm not really sure. Um, but we're specifically just going to look at five verses in the book of Matthew this morning. And I want to think back for a second. It was actually on September 29th, 2019 is when we started the book of Matthew, before we even knew COVID would be a thing. And now, two and a half years later, we're wrapping this up. Over two and a half years later, we're wrapping this up. And uh, what, a, what a cool journey it's been. I don't, maybe it hasn't been for you. Uh, for me, it's been cool <laughs> and growing, maturing. And I was just thinking this week about the fact that uh, for some of you that have been tracking through the whole series, you actually read one whole book of the Bible on your own. Give yourself a hand this morning. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> so if you didn't do it on your own time, you at least did it here on Sunday morning. So that's great. Uh, if some of you are sitting here this morning thinking like, man, we've been in this book a really long time, it's because we've really been in this book a really long time, right? Over two and a half years, it's, it's a really long time. Uh, but this morning, again, I just want to camp out in five verses at the end of Matthew. Um, specifically, we're going we're gonna to focus in on three of them. And so we're going to literally spend the next 40 minutes-ish, maybe hour and a half, who knows, uh, just talking through three verses at the very end of the book of Matthew. And I'll say this this morning, like I've read this passage hundreds of times. I've quoted it probably hundreds of times. And it has been so good for me to camp out in this, these three verses um, the past week. It has been so, so good for my heart, so good for my soul. And so my prayer for you this morning is as we spend some time in these three verses that God does something to just bring life to your hearts this morning, to encourage you, to challenge you, um, and to let his spirit have his way in you this morning. So let's read uh, starting at verse 16 through 20. Matthew 28, 16 through 20, and we'll read, then we'll pray, then we'll hop in. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time on this this morning, but it's interesting that you have um, now Jesus talking to his disciples after his post-resurrection. And um, when they see him, they worship him. And some doubted. Is that not interesting to you that some of the most committed to Jesus, even at the point that he's been crucified, buried, and resurrected, and now is with them again, still doubted? And I think one of the things that, that we were talking about even in our sermon group this week is this word doubt. Um, so, often not, or so often in our culture, we make it a very negative term. Uh, we don't explore opportunities to doubt and walk with people who are doubting. I think that the really neat thing about walking with Jesus and discipling others is that we walk with them in their doubts and their fears, and that we point them back to the Word of God to help reiterate who it is they're serving, why they're serving Him, what this whole thing is about. And so 
Um, I'm not going to spend a ton of time on that this morning, but verse 18, he says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let me pray. Jesus, we give you this time this morning, and we do pray, Lord, that you'd open up our hearts. God, we pray that you um, would speak to us, God. We, we come here this morning not as just some platitude, not to just do the right thing and check the box, but to really engage and meet with the living God. And so we pray this morning as we spend time in your word that we believe is living and active, that you'd speak to us, Jesus, that you'd speak to the condition of our hearts. You know the intricacies of every life in this room. God, you know the amount of hair on people's heads or lack thereof, Jesus. And uh, we thank you, Jesus, that you know us so, so well. And so beings that you know us, God, we pray this morning that you'd speak to us where we're at and we give you this time in your name. Amen. So the short section, um, I want to dig in a little bit deeper. But this passage, honestly, that you you could spend weeks on these three verses if you really want to get into the depths of what it is that Jesus is communicating to his disciples in these passages. But I'm going to divide these into three parts this morning. And these three parts, um, again, I'm stealing these from many commentators who have divided this up into three sections over the years. But what I want you to see this morning in these three verses is, one, the claim that Jesus is making, his great claim. Two, the commission that Jesus is giving. And then the last part is Jesus' comfort, his great comfort that we see in in verse 20. Um, And the first thing I I want you to hear is Jesus' claim that he's making in verse 18. Because this ends up being the setup for the rest of this passage, is this claim that he's making. um, Where he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, not, not sure if you read that and, and get somewhat confused as to what Jesus is exactly saying here, but Jesus has partially made the same claim before, right? If you look back in chapter 11 in the book of Matthew, where we were at months, years ago, uh, Jesus says that all things, which includes all authority, had, added, had actually been handed over to him by his Father, that all things had been given over to him by his Father. And so in addition to that, Jesus then goes on and he validates this authority through the entire gospel of Matthew. He's validating who he is. And Matthew writes this to convince a people of who it is that Jesus is. He is who he says he is. I mean, if there's anything you get from the last two and a half years of spending this much time in the book of Matthew, I hope that you walk away realizing that Jesus could actually be who he is. That his claims were not false. That he was the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so Jesus continuously validates this through his life and ministry, like his authority. He does this through healings. He does this through his ability to command nature, to tell the winds to stop, these storms to stop. He, 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 and then he also has this ability to even command the demonic, right? He can tell demons to leave in people when they're plaguing people's bodies, he, he can tell them to come out. And then he actually goes on in one section, he casts the demons out and he throws them. He casts them into a bunch of pigs. And, and when Jesus does these things through his life, these acts show us that Jesus actually does have ultimate authority, that he can do these things. But, but his teaching, the, the things he taught, he said, 
actually demonstrated this authority as well. There, there was something about the authority that Jesus taught with in that nobody else communicated in. Nobody else communicated with the authority that Jesus did. If you remember back to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus says again and again through the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but now I say. He uses this phrase numerous times. You've heard it said, but now I say. Meaning that the crowds had heard others teach about the law. The crowds had heard other, te- other teachers mention the things that Jesus is saying, but he says, but now I say to you. He, he's saying that, that, that not that just he's, he's changing the law, but now that he's actually bringing fulfillment to the law. And the reality is that nobody taught uh, the, the law up to this point with the authority that Jesus did. He was God himself in the flesh. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, these crowds start declaring that he teaches with such authority, like people can't make sense of it. There's something about what he's saying and the way he says it that is different than others. And yet in spite of that, Jesus was also limited, which is interesting. Like Jesus was in the flesh. He was God in the flesh. I mean, the scriptures say that Jesus, God in the flesh, literally had nowhere to to lay his head, is what the scriptures teach us. The scriptures say that he was a man acquainted with sorrows, that he was stricken by God. The, the prophet Isaiah says that Jesus emptied himself of what was rightfully his as God. Like, what a crazy thing. God himself emptied himself of what was rightfully his. In fact, nowhere in his life and ministry did he call on his privilege as God. Even as he hung on the cross, Jesus didn't call upon God and be like, okay, deal's over, you know, just take me off the cross. He knew that he had to see it through. Instead, Jesus submits himself fully to being reliant on the empowerment and the leading of God's spirit. He does exactly what he asks us to do. And then now in Matthew 28, Jesus claims that he has no limits, that all authority in heaven and on earth has actually been given to him. And so what has changed in Jesus from the moment that uh, he, he died and went to the cross till now after his resurrection, what has changed that now gives Jesus this authority? And this is really interesting to look at. There's three things that have happened prior to Jesus making the statement that he's making right here. And the first thing I think is something that gets skipped over all the time. One, like Jesus' perfect life was totally realized in this moment. Completely. Like he was fully obedient even to the point of death up to this point. He he lived a perfect, sinless, blemish-free, spotless life in our place. Like what we couldn't achieve and accomplish on our own because our flesh is weak Jesus actually realized and became for us, and Jesus actually had to do that. Jesus sort of completed the mission that he was given, right? He lived this perfect life, but then it didn't stop there. Jesus actually dies this death that pays you and I's ransom. Like, that was Good Friday, a week and a half ago, amen? Like, Jesus died that debt paying paying death for you and I, But then he didn't stay in the grave, right? A week ago, what did we celebrate? What he also fully realized in this moment was his resurrection from the grave, that he actually conquered death as well. And so this is what's changed with Jesus. As you see Jesus here, that's what's changed about him. He's literally accomplished 
all three of these things, but hear this this morning, that what was in his past before he became flesh and called himself Jesus was something that was always his. It was always given to him. And yet he chose to live that life, to go through that brutal death, to be buried and to rise again for us. To go through with that, to follow it through. And so Jesus is in this moment, like he's, he's just receiving what was his, yet again, right? After having testified, after, after having evidenced this and declared this by, by way of his life and his death and his resurrection. Romans 1.4 says that he evidenced or he declared that he was the son of God. And how? He goes on to say by way of his resurrection is how he declared that, how he evidenced it. This perfect life, perfect death, resurrection. In the book of Hebrews, the author uh, speaks to this as well in chapter two. He says that what was in his past and testified by his work on the cross was his again. And then also in the prayer, uh, in Jesus' prayer in John 17, 5, he declares, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so what I want you guys to hear this morning, and I think what Jesus is making clear as we see him here at the end of Matthew's gospel, is that in Jesus' risen state, in his resurrected state, it was a state very different than the one he was in prior with his disciples. Something has changed in Jesus. Jesus was now the, the, this resurrected God. Like the, the one who, because he had been obedient to the point of death on the cross, that this name was bestowed upon him by his Father. That, that's the name above all other names. Like Lord of all. In Ephesians um, Paul says in Ephesians 1.21 that Jesus is far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And so to be clear this morning, the disciples have had this brief taste of the power and the authority that Jesus had like while they walked with him. But now Jesus stood before them without any limitations at all. Like all authority has been given to him. If you have a Bible this morning, I want you to see something that I was reading this past week in the book of Revelation. Um, I, I was reading this the other day and thought like, dang, this is kinda cool. It's a picture of Jesus now. Uh, I think it's really rad. At the beginning of the book of Revelation, John, the writer of this book, he gets this, this vision, this glimpse. And, and he says that it's one like a son of man. And I want you to hear this this morning. This is what he sees. I want you to notice how John sees Jesus because it gives you a picture of what Jesus is like now. In Revelation 1, verse 12, it says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, listen to this, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. And from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And John says then in verse 17, And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. What was he seeing in Jesus? All authority and power, dominion, 
king of kings, lord of lords, and he falls at his feet as though dead. Like, this is our Jesus in his resurrected state. And so hear him again when he says in this passage, all authority is mine, here on earth and in the heavenly and in the spiritual realms. So think about this. Think about this for a second, that no matter where you set your foot, Jesus owns it. (laughs) Is that not amazing? No matter where you step, Jesus owns it. No matter what stands against you, Jesus stands against it. That Jesus has this kind of authority that when he returns, Jesus will actually say to the dead, rise. And then he'll judge every one of them perfectly and, and, and holy. Like that's the kind of authority that Jesus has. Anthem, this is why we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us because he has all authority that he's given to us by way of his spirit. Like there's nowhere that Jesus is that he doesn't have the full right to be. Nowhere. He's everywhere. And so this next verse, which we know is the Great Commission in verse 19, as, and this passage begins with, go therefore. And so can you hear like the, the implication of this coming out of Jesus' great claim, that all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And then he says, go therefore. Like it's as though he's saying, you can, you can know that wherever you go, moment by moment, day by day, that I'm actually in control, that I'm actually in charge, so go because it's mine already. That's the authority that he gives us. When he says, go therefore, it comes out of him making the statement of who it is that's sending you. What kind of authority and power that he actually has, all authority and power, that he's actually gone before you in all of these things, that it's all his anyway. You know, there's been several moments in Heather and I's lives where God has asked us to take these steps of faith, like we've discerned that God has led us to do these things. One of them was starting the skateboard ministry 20-some years ago, like fresh out of college, jumping into trying to run a nonprofit and full-time run a skateboard ministry, which is like somewhere you're like, what's a skateboard ministry, Right? Like, literally leading teams of skateboarders around the world to just skateboard and preach the gospel, to lead other people to Jesus. The other one was in 2009, when we had discerned that God was leading us to plant a church. And actually, long story short, actually came through like a prophetic word that we were given in 2005, and then it came to fruition in 2009, unbeknownst to us, moving back to Idaho, and then all these things started falling into place for us to rally with some of our closest friends to start this church. And in the process of these big moments where we were discerning that God was leading us to start these things, you better believe those things came with skepticism from others. Why would you do that? Are you crazy? (laughs) Do you know how dark the skateboard world is? You know what you're up against. How are you going to pay your bills? You don't have insurance. I mean, time and time, it was just like time and time again, it was skepticism. Like, why does Coeur d'Alene need another church? There's tons of churches in Coeur d'Alene. Why do, I mean, go down the list on all the questions and, and the, the, the skepticism that we face. Well, the answer is because we wholeheartedly believed that with the skate ministry, that, that there were people that God desired to know in the skate industry. There were people who God had literally wanted to go after. 
He wanted to know them. He wanted to know he wanted them to know his great love for them, his compassion for them, and, and to see his church even through different eyes than maybe had they had seen it before. And at the end of the day, we knew that, that the people in our region, like here even in North Idaho, were Jesus's. They're his people, right? First and foremost, they just don't know it yet, right? There's hundreds of thousands of them. A small percentage of, percentage of them know and then a large percentage of them do not know. And what we know is that we know that he has a plan and a purpose for their life, but they don't know that yet. And so you step into these moments in life, even amidst skepticism, because you believe wholeheartedly that there's somebody that God wants to reach, that there's a plan that God has that's unfolding, and he's called us to be the ones to step into it. Like, in fact, God is just asking that there's some people that would go tell them, some people that would share with them. And what's interesting is like that my theology was as simple as, like, when Jesus says, go, you go. <laughs> as crazy as that sounds, when he says, go, you go. Like, no matter how hard the road, no matter how small the outcome, you just go. And we have to believe this, because that when Jesus, when, when he says go, again, we go. But the question is, go and do what? Like, what is it that he's asking us to do? So look back at the text. What does he say? Go and make disciples. Well, then that begs the question, like, what in the world is a disciple? Because that word disciple has been so watered down in our culture. Like, I don't think we have a clue what this word actually means. But simply put, a disciple is a learner. A disciple is a follower. A disciple is a student. That's what a disciple is. If you're a disciple of Jesus, then, then your teacher that you're learning from is actually Jesus as you follow him. And so a disciple of Jesus is one whose life is different because they choose to follow Jesus, because disciples imitate their teacher, they're students of their teachers. That's a disciple. And I know it's obvious, but as you look back to the text, just notice it again. I know it seems obvious and doesn't seem necessary to repeat, but what I want you to see is Jesus' commission to us to make disciples. So Jesus is not looking for converts, right? He's not looking for adherents. He's not looking for observers. He's not looking for people just to stand by and be a part of jump in the crowd and just kind of mix with everybody. He's looking for people that will follow him. He's not looking for a crowd even. I mean, get this, Jesus isn't looking for a crowd. Jesus is looking for the committed. Jesus is looking for the devoted. And as we went through the Gospel of Matthew, we even at points talked about the fact that at times you see these crowds of people and these crowds of people that are following Jesus at times in Jesus' ministry become a pain in the neck. Like the crowds become more of a pain than anything. And most of the time these crowds, they, they actually get in the way of Jesus, right? The, the reality is that these crowds can deceive you into thinking that everything's great with you too. And so you just become part of the crowd. And Jesus is really going after the ones. He's wanting people that will follow after him, not just be part of the crowd. Jesus wants disciples, people who follow him, like holy, committed people, heart, soul, mind, strength. And this may be a surprise to some of us, but 
discipleship isn't even an idea that started with Jesus. Like, it was actually prevalent before him and after him. Like, John the Baptist had disciples. In the Jewish culture, a young man would be discipled by a rabbi. In fact, Paul writes that before coming to Jesus, he was educated at the feet of a very, very well-known, renowned rabbi. Like, you wouldn't go enroll in school at that time. You would sit at the feet of a teacher, and you would become a disciple of that specific teacher. That's what they knew as discipleship. And, and there's something that's different even about disciples of Jesus, as simple as this sounds. Like, what is different about a disciple of Jesus versus a disciple of John the Baptist or a disciple of some Jewish rabbi? What is the difference? It's as easy as the fact that they were disciples of Jesus, Right? That's what's different. Like, we're disciples of one who actually has all authority, a disciple of one who's paid a ransom for us through his death, one who is not just a teacher of truth, but one who actually is truth. That's different. He's truth embodied. Like, one who's Savior and Lord and King. And so you put this together, like, we should actually go at his commission because the authority that Jesus has includes authority over you and I. And so when Jesus says to us, his disciples go, we're we're a people who do go. Disciples of Jesus follow the commands of Jesus. So when it's time to go, we go. And so what we also need to recognize in Jesus' great commission is that disciples of Jesus are also people who make disciples of Jesus. We have to see that this morning. This isn't a religious system that Jesus put in place so that we can go make converts. That's not what he's asking. He's asking fully devoted, wholehearted people committed to him to make fully devoted, wholehearted people of him. To continue to point others to him and disciple other people in his ways. I mean, if you're a disciple of Jesus, you make disciples of Jesus. So we're multipliers, right? In other words, like this has kind of been our call since the very beginning. If you look back all the way to Genesis 1 to Adam and Eve, what's the command that they received from the beginning? Is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Meaning that Eden wasn't even necessarily the end game, right? That the earth, full of Jesus' disciples, people walking with him, knowing him, disciples devoted to him was the goal. And Abraham even, like, Abraham was to be what? He was to be the father of many nations, not just one nation, but many nations, and he's our father of the faith. And this has always been the heart of God, to actually fill the earth with his people, to fill the earth with my people, Jesus' people, God's people, to the nations, which is essentially what Jesus says here, is that he commissions us to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, Where this has been taken way out of context is when Christians begin to teach that this means that we have to go to all the nations, that that's God's call in your life, to get out of here and go somewhere else. And the reality is that the nations are here in our backyard, maybe not as much in North Idaho as other places, but they're in our country, they're around us, they're lost, people that don't know Jesus are around us. And we all have the ability, nonetheless, whether we go somewhere else or we stay here, 
we have this ability to make disciples. And it may mean that all we have to do is walk across the street. And God may call some of you today, or maybe he has in the last, the last few weeks or months, to go overseas to another nation. But the mission doesn't change. It's still to go and make disciples. And so Jesus goes on to say, verse 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And then what's he say? He says, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, which is what we say right before we baptize people, right? I baptize you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and then we dunk them. But is that all that Jesus means by that? Is it, it's a phrase that we use when we dunk people, like I baptize you in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Is that all that Jesus means? Is it just this formula that we're to follow? Is it just something we say before we dunk people underwater? And I don't think that's the case. I think there's way more to this. Like, several things to notice here. First of all, I want you to notice that we're to baptize in the, what, the name. The name, not names. The name of, and then he lists three persons, right? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, this isn't a small point to be made in this passage. Like, this should remind us that not only of this triune nature of the Godhead, right, that he exists in Father and in Son and in Holy Spirit, but this should remind us of the role that each person in that Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, actually plays in your and I's discipleship, whether that be our conversion, whether that be our ongoing sanctification, or like our, our maturation, our glorification. Like each person of the Godhead is intimately involved, like fully involved in each step of our lives along the way. And so notice that it says name and not names. Secondly, Notice the baptism in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that it distinguishes it from all other baptisms. There's something different about this baptism. Baptism in and of itself was around long before Jesus. John the Baptist was a what? A baptizer, right? Like, he's called John the Baptist not because he was just like a Baptist, uh, but because he was a baptizer, right? He was baptizing people in a way. But John's baptism was not like this. I mean, you can go way back even into the Old Testament and see where there were these mikvahs. Like they would do these ceremonial cleansings that were like baptisms that were cleansing their bodies. Like that these baptisms existed long before Jesus, but there's something about the baptism that Jesus is announcing here to baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. John's baptism was a baptism of what? Repentance. That's what he was baptizing people into. But what Jesus talks about, it actually stands apart from the rest of them because Jesus' baptism signifies this association and this membership into Jesus. Like you see, baptism is so much more than just simply being this act of obedience that you and I take in our lives. Like the part of baptism that's so special is the aspects of baptism that are identification and declaration of Jesus like we're identifying with him we're forsaking all else to identify our lives our, our, our lives in Jesus we're declaring that he is king of kings and lord of lords that he is master of our lives and so think about this like why even was Jesus himself baptized again go back three years ago when we started the book of Matthew right there's a point at which Jesus is baptized Jesus had nothing to repent of 
right? But yet Jesus is baptized. What's interesting with Jesus' baptism is Jesus was being baptized in order to identify with us. But why are we baptized? In order to identify with Jesus. Like Jesus was baptized at the beginning of his ministry, and that's what began his ministry. And then what, what this said was that Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, oddly enough, like went to the grave, as it were, in the water, and he came out as this foreshadowing of his real death and his real resurrection at the end of his ministry. And so now we get to be baptized to bear testimony of what Jesus has done for us. We baptize for that purpose. Baptism in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this, this actually reminds us of the baptism of Jesus where the Father said to him, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. And then the Spirit descends upon Jesus, it says, like a dove, Father, Son, Spirit, are all at work in this moment in Jesus' life. And so who is it that then qualifies for baptism? How do we get there? What do we have to do? In the book of Acts, Peter kind of answers this question in Acts 2.38. He says, on the day of Pentecost, he says, repent and be baptized. And so one qualification for baptism is repentance, right? And then in Mark 16.16, Jesus adds this, that whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. And so belief is another aspect of it. So repentance turning from our sin, forgiveness in Jesus, belief in Jesus that he was who he said he was, that he lived a blameless life, died a brutal death, was buried, and then he was rose again. And so often we think that baptizing, getting baptized, requires us getting our lives together first. Like we have to somehow clean ourselves up to come to Jesus and be baptized so that we can be cleansed, right? And it's such a strange thought when you think about it because when you, came, when you became a follower of Jesus, how many of you had to get your lives together before you became a follower of Jesus? Like, that would be crazy. We come to him to get our lives together. We don't get our lives together and then come to Jesus. And it's a strange thought because when you became a follower, again, you you didn't have to get your life together first, and that's the beauty of it. That's what makes grace so amazing. And so why are some of us trapped in this way of thinking now? And so I, I want to just like speak to some of you that are thinking that way this morning. And I want you to think about this, is that baptism is not primarily about you or me. It's about the name. The Father, Son, and the Spirit. That's what it's about. Baptism is about this declaration to the world. That, that's what Jesus has done for me. He took my sin, he took my imperfection into the grave. He buried it there, and the only thing that's coming out of that grave is new life, and that's baptism for us. It's about the work that Jesus has done. Baptism is sort of like a wedding ring, right? Which for me is a wedding tattoo. Anybody else have a wedding tattoo? But the ring doesn't make me married, does it? It doesn't. But what the ring does is it symbolizes that I've actually entered into a relationship with somebody, that I'm taken, ladies, right? Yeah, Taken. The ring symbolizes, in case you were wondering, um, <laughs> it symbolizes that I'm, that I'm taken, that I'm committed somewhere. But can you imagine if on my wedding day, 
After I said I do, I said, I'm going to take a hard pass on the ring. I want to get married, but like hard pass on the ring, Heather. Like I'm just not interested in, in, in wearing the ring. What kind of impact does that have on my wife? Oh, you love me and you want to be married to me. You don't want to profess to others, declare to others who it is you're married to or that you're married, period. And this is the hang-up for some of us. We want to raise our hands to be saved by Jesus. We want little Jesus in our hearts, right? (laughs) Which is weird to think about. Um, But we don't want to declare that we're his. 100% 100% his, that we identify only with him, that we've forsaken all other things to declare that he is king and lord and master of my life. Some of you have said, I do to Jesus, but what you're saying to the rest of the world is that I'm not ready to share the relationship. And I don't say that this morning to like, a guilt trip on you guys. I say that to encourage you to put the ring on. The next few weeks, we're going to set up the baptismal and, um, and do some baptisms. And like the crazy thing about this is like, I really felt like the Lord was telling us to do it today and there's some logistical things that didn't allow that for that to happen. But really felt like the Lord was telling us to just set it up. And the weird thing as a pastor is like, if you set it up and nobody comes to get baptized, it feels like, oh, wah-wah, you know what I mean? Really cool to look at that thing. I wish somebody would partake in it. And at the end of the day, like, that's my own issues, right? My own pride. But for the next few Sundays, what I want to do is set that thing up and extend an invitation to those of you in this room that have said, I have declared Jesus as my Lord and Savior, and I'm going to put the ring on. I'm going to get in the water and I'm going to declare to everybody else in this room who actually is Lord and master of my life. Who is it that you identify with? Because there's some of you in this room that have gone years and I'm not, you can be saved and not be baptized. But my rebuttal to that would be like, why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you make that declaration? Like it seems like an amazing opportunity to say before everybody else, He's somebody that I've entrusted everything to and I'm going to put the ring on and I'm going to wear this thing for the rest of my life. I'm committed. I'm wholeheartedly in for Jesus. There's some of you that I was thinking about this that may even be like Paul as he talks about in 2 Corinthians 13 where he calls calls us to examine ourselves to see if we're really in the faith is what Paul says. And maybe there's some of you that are here where you're going like, is my faith real? Like, does my life actually testify to it? Are my affections changing, right? Do I love Jesus more today than last year? And some of you may be at that place today where you're wrestling through with that, wrestling with that, and honestly, I think that's amazing that you're actually wrestling with that stuff. I encourage you to dig deep and to wrestle and to work through those hard questions. Some of you are parents of kids And you have this role as well. Like you have to walk with your kids and you need to ensure that your kids don't simply have a faith that's yours, but a faith that's theirs, right? 
Like we all as parents wait for the day when our kids are like, I want to follow Jesus with my life. And you're like, what? I'm like, that's so amazing. But we've also seen parents who have forced their kids to do it, and there's no life behind it. There's no motivation behind it. There's no devotion behind it. It's just them going through the motions to do what mom and dad told them to do. And so they're basically picking up mom and dad's faith to try to make something of their own that really isn't their own to begin with. And wherever you find yourself on this continuum this morning, as you examine yourself, or as parents, as you journey with your kids, if the Spirit testifies to your spirit, if you're changing, if you see evidence of the Spirit, if you do believe, if you've repented, then get baptized. Like, I think there's a lot of power behind it. And here's something else that I want us to notice about this passage, is that we, we talk about water baptism when we see this word baptized used in scriptures. But notice that up to this point, there haven't been any people baptized in Christ because baptized, baptism signified your belief in and devotion to Jesus who was crucified, buried, and rose again. And baptism was a symbol of believers being buried with Jesus and resurrected to new life in Jesus, and that just happened a week ago, right? Maybe a couple weeks ago at this point. So though water baptism is a part of what Jesus is talking about here, it's not the whole. And actually the first people being baptized believers wouldn't come for like a month after this when they would actually start getting dunked, like fully immersed in water. And so I think that when Jesus uses this word, be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy, and the Holy Spirit, I think what Jesus is referring to is like, whole life immersion, actually. If baptism in and of itself is this idea of going under the water, being baptized, like fully immersed, right? Then what Jesus is talking about is this whole life immersion. And so if that's true, then then what does discipleship look like? Well, it should look like total immersion into the reality of this triune God, this Father, Son, and Spirit, and that our walk with God be this ongoing and growing walk with the Heavenly Father and with Jesus the Son and and His ever-present, like empowering Holy Spirit, being the one within us, moving us, like shaping us, leading us in our lives. And so if all of this is true, then being a disciple and going and make disciples is about way more than evangelism and missionary work. And that's what, like, if you grew up in the church and you've heard this passage over and over again, it's hard to escape the guilt trips you felt when this passage was mentioned and you didn't feel like you were evangelizing enough or going to another nation. And I don't know about you, but I read this and I'm like, I don't, I don't think that that's the crux of what Jesus is getting at, that all of you in this room need to go get thousands of converts, that all of you in this room need to figure out what country you're going to move to to go disciple the nations. All of that is a part of it, right? They're important, like the church should do more of this. But obviously you can't be a disciple of Christ until you actually come to Christ, and then that's the beginning. Like with with the Great Commission being about the entire growth journey of our lives, of the Christian. Like Paul wraps up what I'm saying in Ephesians 4, and he says this. (laughs) It's a long text. I'm gonna drink real quick. He says, and he gave the apostles, 
the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood or womanhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint and with which is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That's what Paul said. That's one sentence, by the way. But can you hear his words, like equip and build and attain and mature and grow, which is why you look back to the Great Commission and Jesus adds next, teaching them to observe. Not just just know, but teaching them to observe, to walk in. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Like that's discipleship, not hearers, only but doers, being like those who hear and do and build their lives on the rock that is Jesus. Like, that's the end goal. That's the great commission. That's body life as well. And I want to take the time to point this out because I want to encourage some of you that feel that if you don't go to another part of the world or that you don't lead someone to Christ every single day of every week, then you're not being faithful to the great commission And it's just not true, because all of us in this room play a part in this. And this isn't to excuse some of us from sharing the gospel of Jesus, sharing the faith, our faith in Jesus with others, but we all have a part to play. And some of us are more shepherds than evangelists in this room. Some of us might be more apostle than teacher. Some of us are more prophet than anything else, but what we need each other for If we're going to be faithful to accomplish the Great Commission, then we believe that we all play a role. That we're all making disciples, that we're all leading the way in this, that we're all teaching others to observe. And so you heard Jesus make this claim, and then we hear Jesus give this Great Commission. And his last point is this, in verse 20, is this great comfort. He says, and behold, I am with you always till the end of the age. And he ends on that note. Again, this is Matthew's last call to behold. Like no other book in the Bible has as many references to this word behold as the book of Matthew. This call to look is what behold means. Look. Jesus doesn't just send us out, but he actually goes with. He he says, I am with you always. And he doesn't say that I will be with you. Jesus actually says that he is with us. Jesus is with us. Jesus is with me. But how? Like if Jesus ascends, how is Jesus actually with us always? And the answer is by his spirit. He's not just with us. He's in us by way of his spirit. He's sent to and into all his disciples to empower us for what they've been commissioned for. He's with you. He's the one doing the work. Jesus always resources us for the tasks that he gives us. And as I close this morning, um, not, not just this message, but the whole book of Matthew, I want to ask you guys a question. Do you remember how the book of Matthew started? 
anybody. Back in chapter one, it starts with Jesus' birth, right? Which we, we read in chapel, chapter one, and the angel of the Lord appeared and said, you shall call his name Emmanuel. That's what it said in the very beginning of the book, which means God with us is what that word Emmanuel means. That was in chapter one, 27 chapters ago, two and a half years ago for us, these words we talked about. And the book ends in the same exact way, like his presence with us from beginning to end. It also ends with us hearing about the authority that's been given to us in Jesus, like all authority. How does Matthew begin the book of Matthew? With these genealogies that sort of set up for us this lineage of where Jesus came from. And Matthew did this to remind us of who Jesus was, that he wasn't just some good prophet, that he wasn't just some good teacher, that he came from the lineage prophesied about in the Old Testament and that he was the coming Messiah that they had long awaited for, that they were waiting to deliver them and to redeem them. And the book ends in the same exact way that with that Messiah, like following these claims, right, that all authority has been given to him, that he was who he said he was. And now the question for you and I, and I'll end on this this morning, is do you actually believe this? Do you actually believe it? Because that's what Matthew's writing this book for, is to convince some people of who Jesus was, to actually try to move them to belief, right? Do we believe it? And if we do believe it, if we profess to believe it, then what is it as a church, as his people, that we're going to do about it? Will we wear the ring and go? Or will we be a people that for the duration of our life sit and talk about it and never act on it? Because I know where that ends up. To be radically honest, it ends up where the American evangelical church is in a state of complacency, a downward spiral where we fail to actually adhere to the following, like the, the leadings of Jesus, to follow his way, but instead make our own ways all in the midst of this and devote ourselves to everything but Jesus. And as Matthew wraps this up, like, I, I can't let us go out of this room without saying, like, do you actually believe it? I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come up here, and I'll finish with a story that I've shared before, but for me, it was this really impactful moment in my life where I'd been invited to speak at this funeral for um, a, a man that I knew really well. His mom had died, and he said, would you come and share at this funeral? And, um, and I said, sure, I'd love to, knowing that this funeral was going to be packed with people that didn't know Jesus. Like, he wasn't walking with Jesus, but yet wanted me to officiate this funeral for his mom. And I stood up before this group of people, probably 400 people in this room, standing room only. They're lined around the walls, and they're, they're just like, the pews are full, and it's at this funeral home. And um, I stand up there, and I was just sharing the gospel. And I got to a piece of scripture where the question literally was asked, do you believe this? And I kid you not, like, I literally was just reading the verse and I said, do you believe this? And in the back of the room is this man standing up against the wall. He just falls flat on his face. And in this room of 400 people, we're like, everybody stops. 
What do you do? And all these people rush over to start tending to this guy. And I just continue on. <laughs> and afterwards, I go, I go to this man, and um, we're, we're literally standing graveside at this woman's funeral. And I, I was like, are you okay? He goes, yeah, I'm not really sure what happened. It's like, you literally read this passage and asked this question, and next thing you know, I was face first on the ground. And you can believe what you want to about that story, but it led to this amazing conversation with this man about Christ. And I full, like wholeheartedly believe that in that moment, it was God's authority upon this man. That when he was faced with the question, do you believe this? God got hold of his heart. And it was an amazing moment for me, like just like the power of God's word. Jesus, you actually are who you say you are. Like there's no denial in this. Like you are all powerful. You are all seeing, you are all knowing. Like you are all in all. You really are. And as Christians, we walk in so little of that power. Like the authority that was bestowed upon Jesus is extended to you and I by way of his spirit that lives within us. Why would we go on living these lives without the ring, lacking the power, and sort of believing that Jesus is king of kings of lord of lords, depending on the circles we're in, the people we're hanging out with, and the circumstances in my life? That's what we do. Jesus, you can have your way with me in the circumstances that I need you, but if you disappoint me, I'm done. In the high moments in life, Jesus, you are good. Like, you are so good. You do have all authority in my life. Like, look, you, I even see it in the way that things are panning out in my life. And then when things don't look like that, you're the one pointing the finger at him, saying, God, where are you at in, in this? Like, I knew you were with me when things were super good, but now it seems as though you're, with, you're not with me when all of a sudden the circumstances have changed. And the question becomes like, is, is he with you or isn't he with you? And if he's with you, can he be with you in the good and the bad, in all things? If he's all authoritative, is that in the good and the bad and the ups and the downs of your life? Is it all the time? Or are you willing to wear the ring and profess him regardless of the circumstances that surround you? Or will your life and your devotion to Jesus always change as a result of your life and your circumstances? Because I think he's looking for full-fledged followers of Jesus, fully devoted followers of Christ, people who are all in, have no problem wearing the ring and boasting to the rest of the world who it is they're devoted to. I want to pray for you. And as we wrap up the, this book, man, like, I just, I hope it's not the last time you read through the book of Matthew. I hope you make more time to read through the Gospels, to kind of soak yourself in it, to let Jesus speak to you through it, to be challenged and moved to actually live in a way that aligns with the way of Jesus as he leads you by his spirit in your life. And for those of you in this room that have never been baptized, or maybe you were baptized because your parents told you to, maybe you got baptized because the crowd was doing it. And there's just something in you that's like, it lacks substance. I wasn't devoted. I'd love to give it another chance, like and stand before this group of people and say I'm all in. But next week, we're gonna have the baptismal. I'm gonna tell you to bring a change of clothes. Go to our connect desk when we get done 
this morning and let them know that you'd like to be baptized and we'll make room for you to do so. But my hope is not that we can pad our numbers with a bunch of baptisms, but that we literally have people professing whose they are and going down in the waters of baptism to declare his power, amen? Let me pray for you. Jesus, I thank you for the last two and a half years, God. When we started this book, we would have had no idea what was ahead for us, and it seems like the last two and a half years has just been this roller coaster of ups and downs in life, in our culture, in our country, in our world. And Jesus, I'm so grateful that through the ups and the downs of all of this, that you do remain with us, God, that you have never left us nor forsaken us. And so I'm praying for us as we go this morning that um, we literally would wave the banner of Christ high, that we would wear the ring, that we would be a wholly devoted people, and that we wouldn't be a people that just talk about it, but a people that live it, and a people that actually invite other people into it, that disciple and teach others in the ways of Jesus as well, that they would follow Christ as we follow Christ, that we could be people that would lead others down this path as well. And so I pray for us, God, that we would be a church that would never become insulated, a church that would never become all about us, a church that would never just like look at um, Christianity as some religious system or boxes to be checked, but that we'd always go to you, Jesus, and believe that if your spirit is leading us, then man, you are leading us in the ups and the downs. You're with us, Jesus. And that if you're with us, God, that you won't leave us, that you don't say that you're only with us sometimes, but that you're with us all the time. And and Jesus, I pray for just your spirit to come alive within us, that as we leave these walls, we realize that this isn't a game to be played, that this isn't just some quota to be met, that this isn't just some cool historical book that we read from, but it's actually a way of life where we surrender and devote our lives to the master, Jesus. And I pray in doing so, God, that there would be life that would come within us as well as life that would be shared with others, that our lives would bear fruit, that others would come to know you, that our city would look differently, not as a result of an evangelistic crusade held in the park, but as a result of 400 people in this room that choose to devote their whole lives, their whole hearts to you. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.